Hello, and welcome to this month's edition of the Archimedes podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. This is the podcast about the evidence-based section of the archives, where people go away with a clinical question in mind and search for the evidence that might answer it. They get that evidence and they weigh it in their minds and they decide which is the good bit, which is the not so good bit. Where are the strengths and weaknesses in this? Where can I I bring all of this evidence together to make a clinical conclusion that could be applied in practice? Now, of course, the whole of the archives is packed full of juicy stuff that you can use in clinical practice, but, but the Archimedes section is where it gets crystallised down into these little nuggets of delight that give us evidence-based paediatric joy. And in addition to that, we have a, a sprinkling of tasty bits on top that we like to call the critical appraisal note, which is something about the practice or the understanding of methodology or evidence-based medicine. It would be nice to have clinical trials for every decision in medicine. It would be lovely to have a a rolling study of managing the baby with wee infections, like the recovery trial, where we asked really important questions about diagnosis, investigation, treatment and follow-up of kids with UTIs. It would let us know, with a fair degree of certainty, which route of giving antibiotics was best overall, and even where, if the differences were slim, that we had uncertainty and it was based on family values and stuff. We haven't got that in most places in paediatrics. Instead, we've got a hodgepodge of trials and slivers of observational studies that we have to appraise and we have to consider quite carefully. Trials that might answer a question that we don't quite want to ask and observational studies which always contain the unspoken concerns over how which way the treating team had their arms nudged with one clinical bit of information or another. Now if we reject all of that then we're left just making decisions on our own memories and the, the clouded collective traditions of our predecessors usually in the unit that we're currently working in. It's this balancing act that we have to undertake when we're looking for the best evidence available to answer clinical questions, particularly in paediatrics. Unless the current management is based on high-quality, randomised trials, and to be fair, you've got a better chance of this happening in paediatric hematology oncology or in neonates than anywhere else, really, then it's churlish to demand only those studies move us. The best evidence might still be proven wrong, but it's usually better than no evidence or guesswork. And when we ask, well, is there a randomised trial to change that? We should also really think, what was it that made us act like this in the first place? Now, we've got two clinical questions this week. And one of them comes from the Children's Hospital at Temple Street in Dublin in Ireland. This is from Brian Finn and John Fitzsimmons. And they ask, when is the appropriate time to administer vaccines to an infant whose mum received anti-TNF treatments during pregnancy? Now, this was triggered because there was a kid who came to the clinic whose rheumatologist of the the mum had suggested that all vaccinations be delayed until six months of age. And the mum, and to some extent the paediatrician that was uh, asked about this, were really a bit disturbed by putting everything off for a full six months. After all, we start the vaccinations early to prevent those first six months being full of disease. 
Now, the team went away and they looked to see were there data to underpin an answer to this question. They had a very broad search that had over 5,000 potential hits to start with. Cut that down to 43 that they got the full text of and looked at those in detail and 7 went in in the end. These were different types of cohorts, sometimes with a control cohort alongside as well. The largest was 670 exposed to TNF um, in pregnancy, with, with 88 getting a BCG vaccination. There was a registry of 153 cases that looked after delivery and then giving the vaccines at usual time, what the sort of levels of Hib and tetanus antibody were. A Chinese registry study took 30 looking at hepatitis B vaccination and what happened on the other side of that. And then one, a sort of slightly longer term follow-up, following 72 kids up to a year of age and a little bit more. 95% of those showing good serological responses and actually no increases in infection compared to other children that they were matching against whose mums hadn't got the TNF alphas in pregnancy. Now all of this is is slightly messy, observational, put together, not directly randomising people to get vaccines one side or the other, but does add up and confirm the current advice, which recommends the routine administration of all non-live vaccines to infants who've had the anti-TNF agents, as long as there's no evidence of the, of the baby being unwell at a normal time. Now, for those that did get the anti-TNF agents, the live vaccine rotavirus can be done by delaying it a little bit to the four and six months of age. Uh, there's one particular uh, uh, agent, Sertoluzumab, uh, or some presentation of that, where actually we know that this doesn't cross the um, the placental barrier, and so that's that's the one that pregnant people are usually switched to, um, and and to not delay, uh, and that can be done normally. And then when it comes to BCG, we're really saying that, that, that waiting until six months is probably the right thing to do. But looking at the data that's out there, the actual risk from BCG infection done earlier in this setting is, is pretty small. And so if there was an area with a highly endemic cases of TB or a particular high paediatric risk for that patient, then you could absolutely consider giving it earlier than six months. Uh, be aware that in some places we're starting to do SCID, um, severe combined immunodeficiency screening on neonatal blood spots, and you would always wait for the results of that to come back before you considered giving the BCG vaccination. Our other case this month goes from a completely different angle and a completely different place. And Joseph Tong and Kerthina Surajan from the University of Sheffield um, in Sheffield in the UK ask a question about radioiodine for the treatment of juvenile Graves hyperthyroidism. Now, coming from an oncological background, I'm well aware of the use of radioiodine in the setting of thyroid cancer. And, uh, and, and generally speaking, I always think about radiotherapy being used in malignant disease, not in a, a non-malignant condition. So this question took me a little bit by surprise. The background is, is incredibly straightforward and sensible, and that's a, a young woman aged 14 who had been diagnosed with Graves' disease and treated with antithyroid drugs, which I thought were pretty normal. And then it lost control a couple of years after starting that, um, and she had a recurrence of her Graves coming back again. 
The question was then asked because the parents had looked it up. Um, would it be better to go for a, a radio ablation, the giving a, a radioactive iodine that would destroy part of the thyroid gland in order to cure the Graves' disease? The team here went away and looked at only 500 and odd papers compared to the 5,000 of the other group, came down with seven that they wanted to look at in great detail, and they did, and of that, five they included. The five split really into two groups. There was one, which was an up-to-date systematic review of randomised controlled trials, and that pulled all age studies together, uh, showing that with the radioiodine compared to the usual blocking drugs, it had a better cure rate, probably one and two thirds times as better cure, but also maybe twice the risk of hypothyroidism in the short term. But actually looking at relatively short-term side effects, radioiodine had fewer, probably a fifth of the side effects compared to the blocking drugs, which probably says that it's more effective in the short-term, less side-effectful, but a greater chance of you having to take thyroid replacement pills going onwards. Now, the group wrote this, and myself and probably many of the listeners are thinking, yeah, well, that's the short term, but, but actually when we're using radioactive substances, we're not really that interested in the short term side effects, we're interested in the long term ones. And they pulled four retrospective cohorts that had tried to look at longer term side effects. Now, longer term in this setting was up to about 10 years follow up, so not the 30, 40, 50 years that we'd be really wanting. But in that time frame, there weren't any increase in malignancies. There were no thyroid malignancies in particular, although there were increasing rates of hypothyroidism, as you would expect with Graves' disease anyway, and other side effects, but, but still only around the 10% level that people were reporting. That's not an enormously high level. What they came to in their sort of clinical conclusion of pulling all of this together was that radioiodine does have the potential to become a quite reasonable treatment option. And maybe it needs to be thought about in the setting of when would it be done best rather than is it to be used at all. For those that are younger or whose parents or the, the child themselves doesn't want to go down that radioiodine line, then perhaps that's best to go down the blocking line. For those that have a big bulky goiter, then, then it might well be best to actually go for surgery, an option that wasn't really considered within this question, but, but is, is useful in that setting of, of a big bulky goiter. And really to offer for those others that are older or unsuitable for surgery or who have maybe tried the side effects of the antithyroid drugs in the past or, or don't like the, the sound of those happening, then maybe they're the ones that you should be considering the radioiodine upfront treatment for. It's an interesting paper that's pulled together a lot of things from a range of options, as the other one has, and shows that when you're asking an evidence-based question, you really need to think broadly and think deeply about not just the little bit that you're looking at, but the breadth and the implications of the treatments that you're wondering about as time goes on. So... That's it for the Archimedes podcast this month. We hope you have had fun. We hope that you have been filled with education and delight and maybe even inspired to think, oh, I've got a question that I haven't quite seen answered either. 
If that's the case with you, then jump on the instructions to authors for the archives website, follow the link, have a look at the template that's there and register your question in advance. As an editorial team, we try and be supportive and nudge you away from questions that are unlikely to get published or have been published recently or, or we really think you might be wasting your time doing and nudge you towards maybe fine-tuning what you're asking in an area that is more likely to get you out the far end. Not everybody who writes a good Archimedes gets published. That's the way of the world. And we've got to remember that although these are inspired by real-life cases, the cases themselves are rarely part of the Archimedes, and if they are, they're always with explicit patient permission. So, until Black's Month, we look forward to hearing from you and your feedback on the Archimedes section of the Archives of Disease of Childhood. Thank you for listening. <laughs>